Hello, my name is Zabania Shukla and this is my co-host Karen Maruni and you're listening to Great in the Sun Business. Welcome to the show. Welcome everyone. Our guest today is Chris Van Pelt. Chris is the co-founder of Weights and Bices, which a lot of you might know already. Before Weights and Bices, Chris founded Figurate and Chris has been doing machine learning for over 15 years. So he was doing ML before ML was cool, before it was called deep learning. Um, I've personally worked with Chris for more than four years and I've learned a lot from him and I'm super excited to talk to him. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me guys, excited to be here. Thank you. So um, Chris, in this show, we're taking a little bit of a different approach from Lucas and we're trying to understand, like Karen said, the people behind and the stories behind the product. So I have a lot of, we all have a lot of friends who are in that state where they are showing their product to their first few users. And it's easy to get lost in like chase down wrong rabbit holes or like not know what the right first user is. So like, how do you identify them and like, make sure you don't like customize the product too much for them. And then how do you keep going with the current idea when you're hearing no? When do you know that you actually should pivot? Yeah, I mean, I think early for us, one of the things we did right was to partner with, you know, people that were actually doing machine learning. Like we knew when we started the company, we want to help people do machine learning. That was, that was like very clear. Um, there's a number of different personas within that, in that space. And we were fortunate enough through some relationships that we had built at, at Crowdflower Figure 8 to be able to like talk to a team like Toyota Research Institute. And in, in those discussions, they were very open, right? We barely had a product. Uh, so we would be going in and, and kind of talking to them about the kinds of challenges that, that they were having. Um, and it was like Luke, Sean, and I would drive down to um, Silicon Valley, have one of these meetings. And then on our drive back up, we'd, we'd be processing it. And we'd be like, hey, you know, that person said they really wanted that. Should we maybe, you know, look into building something there? What, how, can, how can this all tie in to, to make something useful? Um, so, I mean, I'm already forgetting your, your original question, Lavanya, but I, I think the advice would be, you know, find, find folks that you enjoy being around. Like we, we really enjoyed going down and, and talking about their issues and what they were working on and thought what they were doing with like autonomous vehicles and, and making machines able to like navigate the real world. And they had like sick robots, like in TRI. It was just a joy to go to that place. Um, and we got along and because of that, they were more open and sharing more. And that allowed us to kind of process and, and, and decide what was important and what direction we would take the, the product in early on. Without those partners, I think we, we likely would have made um, a lot of the wrong things for mm -hmm. sure. So that's really good advice of find customers that excite you. And I think that's good advice in general when you're picking co-founders, the people that like uh, you're working with at the beginning, like if they inspire you and excite you, that's probably good things are going to happen there. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I've heard you speak before and you get this real love for ML practitioners. Like it comes through and I, it's a joy to like watch and see. How did you find this love of tools? So you were like, I want to build tools. Like why, what drew that? Well, like as someone, you know, I mentioned I studied art 
and computer science in in college. And like as an artist, tools are like fundamental, right? I like need the paper, I need the the paint, the the pencils and and whatever other interesting tool I might be using in my in my art media. Uh I mean, literally, I did a lot of sculpture in college and would use like, you know, welders and saws and what we would think of as like things in a tool shop. Um, as a developer, uh, tools make me feel like pretty intensely and they, they can make me feel either very elated <laughs> or incredibly frustrated and angry. Um, we care about our tools a lot as a, as a developer. And we spend a lot of time with them. Um, so I think, you know, between art and the development I've done over the years and the discovery of like really good tools and the suffering through like really bad tools, it, it felt obvious to, to work on uh, tools. Yeah, I, I get that. I just, it's interesting because a lot of people just don't, aren't drawn to the thing that's most useful to others. I want to go back to something. You are a technical founder, you know, you, and yet you get on the airplane and you talk a lot to customers and you sell. And I know a lot of technical founders are like, I would like to outsource the selling part. What, what do you say? And how do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I mean, not everyone's cut out for selling for, for sure. And I, I don't remember a time where I was like, oh, I really need to hone my selling skills. It, it came, you know, somewhat naturally to me. And by no means do I, you know, believe that I'm, uh, I would agree with just that. this like ace up it. your sleeve, uh, seller, but. It might just be uh, your curiosity or your interest in the people. That's sort of what's coming across versus and like what they're doing. You know, the people and like what problem are you solving? How can I help you? That's like how Chris approaches like these selling conversations. I guess you know, I don't know. Like sometimes I feel pretty introverted, and sometimes I feel pretty extroverted. Right? There's not. I wouldn't say I'm necessarily, you know, really one or the other, but I do enjoy. Uh, group settings and like people laughing and, and connection and the, the feeling of energy you get um, when you, you know, you feel seen, heard and understood like that. That's a, that's a thing that I go after. And I, I think you definitely need to be wired that way to, to go and, and sell. It sounds like you can do both because when you're coding, that's in your own. And then you go and you get the energy from other people. So it sounds like you play in both. Lavanya, are you an introvert or an extrovert? I'm going to guess, but I don't know. What do you? What would you say? I feel like people would think I'm an extrovert, but I am an introvert with a lot of energy. I think. What about you? <laughs> uh, probably the same. When I was at Facebook, I was going to write an introvert's guide to an offsite because I would find myself hiding in the bathroom. Yeah. Um, but I really do enjoy talking to people. So. I didn't know how to square that. And Chris, that really resonated with me when you said that, because I like to work with people and I get energy from it, but then I need a place to go and think and retreat. So I don't know what we call ourselves then. It sounds like we're all a little similar. Yeah. I think one thing we all have in common is like, if you find your people, 
then you can be extroverted all day long, right? But like, you got to find that energy that Chris was talking about earlier. This it makes me think about, Chris, you've talked about this thing called the T group. So you are watching you as a leader is so amazing because you are so empathetic. Like if there's anyone in the company who's going through stuff, you really feel for them and you really lead when people, people are going through a tough time from your heart. How much of that comes from the T group? And can you tell us about how that shaped your leadership style in general? Uh, yeah, well, maybe we should like level set and explain to listeners like what, or attempt to explain what T group is. Yeah. I don't know um, what it is. Yeah. It's new to me. Well, I'm actually, I'm going to a T group tomorrow. Ooh. I'm really excited. Okay. Uh, this, this would be my third T group. Um, T groups. It's, it's a difficult thing to describe. It's, it's much better like experienced, but essentially like 10 random startup leaders are going to go on a little field trip uh, Thursday and Friday this week. Um, our kind of guide and, and moderator, uh, a woman named Anna Marie, is, is going to be hosting the, the tea group itself. There's you know, a number of kind of, it's, I guess it's a little bit like, it's not like Fight Club at all. There, there are rules about tea group though. <laughs> and are you uh, allowed to talk about it? Isn't the rule with Fight Club you can't talk about it? Yeah, no, that's not one of the rules of tea group. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, we try to stay in, in like the moment and the here and now. So it's not like a group help session where we're talking about all the trials and tribulations that happened in the past or the things we're worried about in the future. It's really about like what's happening in this group. And we're, we're like in a circle. So we're all like looking at each other. And we spend like the entire day How many just people? kind of in an open discussion, about 10, 10 folks. Um, Why do you do it? So we learn a lot about how we're perceived by others in a, in a leadership context, in a group context. We're also encouraged to kind of come into it with some goals. So maybe I want to participate more or I want to be able to receive feedback better or I want to be able to give feedback better. Um, and it can get like intense. So, you know, people will be very frank about how they're feeling. I mean, we're, we're taught to really sit there and think about what feelings are coming up and often those feelings aren't good. And we're going to tell the other people in the group that they made us feel that way. Mm -hmm. Um, and it, I don't know, I've come out of it just with this like afterglow of like, wow, it's, it's almost like a meditation retreat or something. Cause you're sitting there in a a pretty vulnerable place and, and, uh, I've grown a lot because how of has it, that you know. shaped you as a leader? Well, I mean, I think the, a big one was really prior. I mean, I've always, yeah, I don't know. Well, prior to T group, I think in my mind, feelings were not important, especially in a work context. Mm -hmm. Feelings got in the way they were, uh, a nuisance and they would prevent me from being the like ice cold logical executor that I needed to be. And going to T group made me realize like, Oh wait, like these feelings are like critical to, to how I relate to others in the company, to how I can lead and to how I'm able to know like where my boundaries are, what, um, what's like good for me in any given, you know, often very stressful and, uh, it would put it in the icky feeling bucket um, that, you know, we, I don't let myself feel that. And then, you know, that's a recipe for 
stuckness and, yeah when you start you're pretty much writing code 100 percent of your time and over time like the percentage of time of what you spend it on between like talking to customers or internally or do you have a rough breakdown of today i know it's going to change but today percentage of your time spent in different areas uh well it really fluctuates, but I guess my, my like ideal, um, time partitioning would be like 50% of my time. I'm, I'm writing code in some capacity, yeah. whether that is, is code for like a new product feature or to squash a bug, or it's, it's code to actually use the product. It's like doing some modeling or playing with, you know, some of the new LLM stuff. I've heard people are pretty excited about that. Um, <laughs> I hear it's yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then 25% of my time will be, uh, like customer related things. Like I just, I had a call with a customer this morning. Um, if I can help, whether it be something like more technical and how things work in the infrastructure space, or just as, you know, by bringing like a founder's perspective to a, um, a strategic conversation. I, I love that and try to do that as much as possible. Uh, and you know, talks like, um, there's a talk at Ray Summit next week, and then um, going to be going to DockerCon, doing more of those. It's always fun. And then the, you know, the last 25% would just be, you know, the day-to-day, -day, like, work that needs to be done, right? It's like more meetings. The thing I miss about the very, like, in the very beginning, there's just no meetings. There's zero, <laughs> right? That's the thing I miss the most, is that, like, no meetings. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but now, you know, at least, like, 25% of my time, it's just meetings. Um, you know, and I'm you know trying lucky. to bring my best self to those meetings. But you're yeah. lucky; it's 25. <laughs> Some of us, yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> Some are very different. Yeah. So here, we're gonna change the pace. I'm gonna do a lightning round. Lavanya's gonna jump into. So this is the first thing that comes to your head. Don't overthink it, and just go. First one. Three adjectives that others would describe you as, and you can't say curious because I've heard curious. So three others besides curious adjectives that people would describe you as. Go. Oh boy. Uh, can't use curious. Nope. Dang. No. no I'm, it's, I'm trying no. to find a synonym now for curiosity. <laughs> can't okay, use you can use curious either. Yeah, no. <laughs> you can uh, use okay, uh, nerdy, um, weird. Yeah. Uh, Actually, Levanya said that. <laughs> nice, good. I'm, I love weird. Weird is a, a value in a good way. Of mine. In a yeah, good yeah. Way. Good weird. Good weird. Good yeah, weird. Not good bad weird. weird. Yeah. Chris's introduction to the company is called Weird Stuff at CVP. That's his 101. <laughs> and uh, I asked other people this, and so far, curious and weird both came up. So I'm I'm curious if you have a third. <laughs> uh, maybe silly. Silly. I heard humble a bunch from other people. We we like asked. Oh, you can't. Too. You can't. I know. You can't, you can't say you're brag. humble. They're I like know, totally. I know. That's I a total. So humble. Okay. So, <laughs> inside voice. When you're, maybe even now, what's in your inside voice that you like tell yourself not to say out loud? Don't say it out loud. What is that? Uh. Well, honestly, it's like it's usually very little. I tend to be. <laughs> Like an open book. I've got I've gotten in trouble for saying uh, more than I more than I should. Um, Hence the weird thing that people call you. Yeah, maybe that's a part of the weird thing. <laughs> it's because your inside voice is your outside voice. Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, I just want to. I mean, I, I, think just, I am like a little. Oh, go ahead, Lavanya. I was just going to say, Chris is very genuine. It's not like in a bad way. Chris is like so himself at all times that whatever he thinks comes out. Go ahead. Uh, thanks, Lavanya. Um, <laughs> you know, I will say that I'm, I am fairly conflict averse. Like, I'll, if there's something that's like annoying me, I'll just kind of like grip my teeth and push through it. I'd rather just like deal with it than confront it. Um, but T groups teaching me to actually confront in, you know, the appropriate situations. So, uh, you're doing a great job at it. I've seen you improve over the years. Uh, next question. What's the first thing you ever built? Uh, Ron, the bus nut.com. That's right. Uh, specifically this was in an era where flash introductions were a big deal. Like when you go to the website, you need like, yeah, all of the moving stuff and the sound. I made a sick flash animation with like a bus. And I remember I used like the prodigy was my background music, which my dad didn't really like the prodigy, but too bad. You know, it's my website intro for ronthebusnet.com. Yeah. I think you're next in your next meeting at Weights and Biases. You guys need to. You know, we need a revival of this. Hell yeah. <laughs> I've looked for it. It's the Wayback Machine has some some early Ron the com, but I, I haven't found the original Flash. I need to do some more digging. If you could hack with someone dead or alive, who would you hack with and what would you hack on? Ooh, hack. Um I'd, I'd probably Yukihiro Matsumoto the like author of ruby i haven't done i haven't done like ruby in a long time but i love uh japan and japanese culture and ruby is what got me into this so like the thought of sitting down like writing code with the um kind of author of such a uh, impactful tool is exciting i don't know what we what we hack on something sick we figure it out that doesn't matter Chris, Chris is known for building insane things in a day. You just give him a day and he just goes off. And that's the, okay. What's the biggest mistake work-wise don't need to dive into your personal life too much that you've made in the last two years. Oh, two years, three years. Well, okay. I'll just, this isn't quite three years. This is probably like a little older, but, um, the team is like still griping about it. Uh, when you start, you need to like choose all the technologies and you know that you're going to be like stuck with these mostly. Um, and like one of the decisions I felt I was forced into, we, we used MySQL as the like data store for, for everything because at the time we were on Google cloud and all they had was a managed MySQL offering. They didn't have managed Postgres. Um, so yeah, the, the team is still, they, they would much rather be, uh, on team Postgres, but alas. Alas. Uh, oh, it's I good also, that you still get yeah. crap for that. Oh yeah, for sure. Oh, yeah. Um, and, uh, I chose a UI framework. It's called like semantic UI. I probably, this, uh, this is a failure mode of mine. I should have just gone like material UI or something like a little more mainstream. Semantic UI isn't really being updated anymore. Now it's like all over the code base. So the team's like creating a new UI framework, but it's this like long, painful process to move things over. Like once that stuff's in there, it's really hard to rip out. Um, so, yeah. Uh, what do what do you think people get wrong about weights and biases? Uh, well, I think a lot of the market sees us as experiment tracking. Like 
all we do is just track experiments. And, uh, you know, we've grown now. We're a company of 200 people. We have lots of engineers working on um, lots of different aspects of the, the MLOps pipeline. Uh, and especially now with, with the advent of, of Gen AI and, and um, the expansion of our targetable persona base, like it used to be like, okay, ML researcher builds model understands uh, backprop and, and all of the you know, underpinnings of deep learning. Now we have just regular software developers that are able to leverage um, AI and still need to care about the same things like evaluating how well the model is doing and monitoring that in, in production settings. Um, yeah, we're, we're working on lots of uh, really powerful tooling in all of those different aspects. And, and uh, I think a lot of times the, the market doesn't realize that we can be used beyond just uh, tracking of experiments. Yeah. Question, something that we talked about, how do you know if you're in a cave or a tunnel? And a tunnel is a hard time and a cave is a dead end and a real change needs to be made. I think of a tunnel is like, you need to be patient. It's a hard time. A cave is like, going to have to figure out something else. It's a mental model that I have for myself. Like when I'm in a tough time, I'm like cave or tunnel, cave or tunnel. Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, I immediately like think visually and I'm like, okay, I'm looking for like light. I'm <laughs> looking for like a pinhole <laughs> somewhere in the distance. In the even, even if it's like, if it's not clear, that's actually way out. Maybe it's just like a little crack in the cave and it's, it's, you know. Um, if I have something I'm clearly marching towards, then I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm more in this, uh, tunnel situation, but so many times as a programmer, you have this where you're, you think you have this great idea and you go down this like rabbit hole and then you get a little sign that's like, this seems like maybe a cave. You should maybe turn around, but you're like, oh, but I came this far. I want to keep going. Uh, and, yeah. <laughs> I put all this you learn, time I've it. learned like it can actually feel really good to throw away like yeah. days of, of cave walking, um, yes. if you will. It's yeah. that's, that's a unique skill. I mean, to, to be like, all right, you know, let's go, let's go try another cave because it's, it's hard to know. And it's really, it reminds me of like this fallacy of one thing. And when you start a company and I've heard you talk about this, like if you can just do one thing, if you can get your first customer, if you can get one more feature, if you can fix this bug, like as a founder, you're constantly thinking like this one thing will change everything. I mean, you guys did have open AI as your first customer. So you could argue that one thing was pretty meaningful, but did you have this one thing idea frame and how do you think about it now? Uh, yeah. I mean, it was always like, uh, how do we get people to use what we're, what we're making. Right. So, uh, if there was one thing, it was like, get something into the hands of, of someone and, and try to help them be successful. And, you know, we were fortunate to have a partner in open AI that, that did use this early on, but that also wasn't easy or clear. Like I remember we went to open AI and presented to, um, a lot of the researchers, I remember I was doing the demo, which, you know, I give great demos, right? Well, it didn't feel like it. Like they were all on their computers, just looking down. It felt like so, so deflating. This is a visual that really every founder needs to see. Oh yeah, totally. Just because when you're like, giving like, a speech or a demo, all you're really going to see is like. Yeah, it's rough. You got to make your rough. own energy. 
Yeah. So that you, you come you. out of that and you, you come out of those meetings and you just think like, poof, man, that's rough. And you feel like we missed an opportunity. Like a part of that must've been my fault. Like I wasn't engaging enough to, to like pull them away from their, from their laptops. Um, but you know, it's a lot of, of small, like baby steps and everything we do can potentially help some, you know, future big milestone. And, you know, ultimately because we had been talking to them and they were aware of us when they had a problem, they thought, Hey, maybe weights and biases could help us with this problem. And we jumped at the, at the opportunity. Um, but yeah. You know, um, this phase that you're talking about, sometimes it can last only six months. Sometimes it can last 14 years. Like the crafts are like, how do you keep going? And like, when do you know it's time to, like Karen said, like, is it a cave or like a tunnel? But like, also, even if you know it's a tunnel, but it's a long tunnel, how do you keep going? And I think you're also really good at taking the rest of us and like lifting our spirits and like making sure we're going along and optimistic with you. Well, I mean, you, you find the things that, that are working because uh-huh. oftentimes, you know, a lot of things aren't working, but, uh, as long as you've got some things that are working, just remind yourself of those. Uh, it's important. Yeah. Um, you know, even this week, like I was, I was talking to the, the sales folks and they were telling me about some conversations that they've been having. And it's like great news. It's like really exciting stuff that's happening. And sometimes when you're not in a lot of those sales meetings or you're grinding away on some, some feature that's now like late and you feel like it has to be out yesterday. And if we don't get it out, it's going to be really, really bad. You remind, okay, well, um, these things, these things are working. It's going to be okay. Let's keep pushing. The other thing, uh, you know, one of our early like seed investors, this is such a cliche, but it's, it's true. It was like, you know, work smarter, not harder. Like at some point there's so much stuff that you have to get done, but you're not going to be able to do it all. So step back and, and think like, well, what really matters? Or what's the thing that could matter the most with the you know, most reasonable mo- amount of effort uh, in, the, in the near term? Um, and just you know, take, a, take a step back. And anytime you're starting to feel like really overwhelmed and like down in the dumps, uh, you can take a step back and march towards a, a near-term goal. Crowdflower, right? That we'd have periods of growth and then periods of like flatlining or even, um, you know, like losing uh, revenue during periods in the in the company. And it's at the end of the day, it's like or we're trying to get this like revenue number to go up. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, at a long enough time scale, it might look a little sad. But right now, I have like this month. Can I make it go up this month? <laughs> Can I make it go up like next month? You know, let's, let's just like stay in the here and now and keep pushing forward. I know it's cliche, but it's hard to be like, all right, am I, how do you not mistake motion for progress? Cause you can be really busy, but the progress isn't either happening or you're, you're doing this March and it actually isn't the thing that matters anymore. We're all in ML. It's changing so bleeping fast that getting the outside input with like the relentless march how do you check yourself that you're you know not just motion but progress and they you know how do you know when you need to change yeah well i mean i think lucas uh has really put good systems in place at, at weights and biases around uh asking those questions so um you know every two weeks we sit down and say okay what are what are our, like top two to three goals for these two weeks. And those goals are then, you know, shared with the, the company. So um, your 
you're kind of, you know, claiming, all right, this is what I think is, is most important. Um, and maybe that changes after like a week and that's, that's fine, but at least we're, we're having like a, you're not, hopefully you're not getting stuck in this, like, all right, now you're just, you're working on like all the wrong things or it doesn't matter. Or you're not correcting. Right. Because we have an actual like process built in here. We roll that up into, you know, quarterly goals um, so that hopefully these things can kind of fit into the, um, the bigger picture. But I, I also think the, the other important thing is that your peers, right? Hopefully we made a culture where we can actually like share disagreement in a, in a way that people can, can hear. Like if, if I think some team's working on the wrong thing, we'll, we'll share that and have a discussion and decide if, if that, that is the case or not. And having like a, a good leadership team that feels safe enough to, to call each other on, you know, what, what the various initiatives are ensures everyone's kind of held accountable and that hopefully we're marching towards um, goals that are actually going to make a difference. You are known as tech Jesus. Will you tell us where what? that nickname You're came known from? As what? Tech okay. Jesus. I'm not, geez, yeah. I'm not known. Look I'm not known. I didn't know that. Tech Jesus. <laughs> Who calls him that? Does he, A did you even know somebody? Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I didn't oh, know that, but I, I can okay. be very out of it. It's the oh hair and the tech. It's the hair yeah. and the tech. Well, I don't even Yeah. Hair and tech. That's definitely uh, a part story. of it. story. Tell us the story. There, oh, there's a story? It's not, I mean, okay. At our previous company, we uh, were working with the Department of Defense. So we had a meeting in the Pentagon, uh, which is a fascinating place to go to and a little intimidating. But you know, we you had to get rid of all of our phones, and uh, I felt I mean, it was cool. I was Did like, I felt honored to be there. Did they do a background check on you before you got <laughs> to go? Yeah, I think they didn't find anything. Thank okay. God. Just saying, like, I think uh, they probably had yeah. to. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, so you had, had to get a, rid yeah. of your phones. You probably had to go through a bunch of screens. We had, you know, a meeting. I'm, like, meeting with the generals. And I'm, you know, I look like this. I didn't, like, really clean up that much, you know? So I think that was a bit jarring, but I guess my charisma um, <laughs> and my savior, like, uh, just like aura, you know, had them calling me uh, Tech Jesus. Also, Christopher, my name, it means Christ bearer. Okay. So, so I, wait, the people maybe at the I, yeah. Pentagon called you Christ <laughs> Jesus? Yeah, the, I mean... I think maybe some of the lackeys. I'm not. I'm not sure the generals did. Okay, but yeah. Were they in uniform? Do people yeah. in the? I've never been in the yeah. Pentagon. When you walk into the Pentagon, are people in uniform or are they? Yeah, it's a, yeah, definitely. Really, it's a little. It's intense. Yeah. Wow. They're all wearing their hats and everything too. <laughs> I just you don't re, you don't really run into people wearing hats that much, <laughs> unless you're at a baseball game. Then otherwise, it just doesn't happen. I know. It's a or like a, a horse race, like in, in Southern California, <laughs> oh, the Del Mar. Derby. The big hats, the fancy hats. Yes. The derby. Do you, yeah. do you go oh. to horse races in Southern California? Uh, no, I, I mean, I've been to I... one. I've, I've been to one before. Yeah, it was neat. We got to go. Like, we, I'm not we, a regular. We yeah. go. <laughs> I wore a really um, nice hat. What's the mm -hmm. weirdest place you've ever done a customer meeting <gasps> oh, besides the Pentagon? It's not Ooh. like it's sort of like, where's the weirdest place you've ever done a customer meeting like that may not have been the question you were expecting uh okay this wasn't really a customer meeting but i like the story we were driving back from uh it was lucas and i driving back from like a meeting down in menlo or something 
And Luke, he didn't get his driver's license until he was like 28, 29. So this is like shortly after he got his driver's license. And he he can make me like a little nervous, but I had to take a call. Yeah, he was driving because I had to take a call. I was taking a call in the car (laughs) and and like talking to this person. And I like had to, you know, push my feet down. I was, it was very, very nerve wracking, but uh, the call I think went well. What's the weirdest thing about Lucas that people don't know? Uh, he is really into uh, like the evolutionary tree. Oh, and prisms. And he's like magnets. really into prisms. And really yeah, and into magnets, magnets and weird, weird, uh, weird metals. Is he Scientology? No. Uh, not into no, he's in science. He's into science. He's the church science. is science. Okay. Yeah. He's in, yeah. at the edges of science, you know. Okay. Less cool. So if I were to ask Lucas the same question about you, what would he say? And we already oh. said weird is one of your adjectives. For yeah, yeah, he would just oh, say he's weird. Like he couldn't describe no, how he was weird, weird but a weird weirdness, thing. weirdness, like I've definitely made Luke feel uncomfortable. Um <sighs> A number of times. And I like, I like that. That makes, that's like affirmation that I'm being weird enough, you know? Yeah. Uh, What relationships in your life, um, friends, co-founders, people at WB have like made you a better human, a better leader? Like, you know, what has shaped you? Uh, Well, I mean, certainly the, the biggest relationship that shaped me is my, my life partner, my wife, Snezhana. Um, Mm -hmm. How has she uh, shaped you? Well, we came from like very different worldviews. So, you know, I grew up in Iowa um, and my wife grew up in, in Serbia, uh, in Eastern Europe, in a, you know, a war-torn environment. So it was, you know, a very different um, experience of things and, and very different cultures, like just the the culture of of Serbia is like pretty different than the culture of like Iowa or San Francisco or California. Um, so, you know, through curiosity and, and uh, what has been like real heartfelt connection with, with a lot of people in that culture, I've, I've like fallen in love with um, that part of the world. And uh, yeah, my wife pushes me, calls me on my, on my shit. She is not conflict averse like myself. Oh. She is like ready to to um, confront anything that is that she's feeling, which is definitely um, something I can learn from. Uh, how have uh, Lucas and Sean, uh, for those of you who don't know, that those are our co-founders, how have they shaped you as a human? And how do they press your buttons? Yeah, I mean, this is like a relationship. Um, I actually, I mean, Luke and I started our previous company about a year before my wife and I got married. So I've actually been with Lucas longer than um, my wife. Uh, you know, early on, we would we would all go on offsites together. So we literally we'd have our own little like field trip and go to a cabin in the mountains and and hack and and um, work together for a week. And you you you're basically your roommates you start to like really um understand all of the the intricacies of each other and and what you know where buttons are pushed and um you also uh grow close like i you know i love them both i uh we've been through a lot it's like you know i don't like the analogy of like 
soldiers or something, but it, it, it feels like we're, we're brothers in this and, and uh, we can uniquely understand the hard parts and, and hopefully celebrate the, the good parts and, and come out of this uh, in the, in the long term still close friends. Cause there's, when you have a founder, it's like a work marriage. I mean, that's how I think about it. Is there a sense of, um, and you have to also work at the relationship like a work marriage, in my opinion, that it's, you know, it doesn't just happen. Um, it takes work and trust. When you think about somebody picking a co-founder or, you know, I see this now where people are like, oh, I want to be an AI and I have to find a co-founder. And it's just like, no, this is this is chemistry. This is relationship. You don't just like <laughs> any advice to people about that, because I'm seeing this on repeat and it kind of scares the bleep out of me. Cause I just like, it's like, like, what is it? The 90 day fiance or whatever it is. Love it first. I don't, I don't, haven't watched any of them, but it reminds me of love that. And don't love is blind. Mm -hmm. Do those work? I don't know. I mean, every once in a while they do, but I would imagine most of the time they don't. Um, you know, Luke and I, we we met because we both worked at the same startup um, a company called PowerSet when I first moved to San Francisco. Uh, and we both lived in the Mission District and um, we would hang out uh, as as friends and then also, you know, work together on stuff. And, uh, you know, we did that for like seven, eight months before we decided hey, let's go found a, a company together. Like that wasn't, we weren't from the start, you know, thinking about leaving and starting a company. We, we became friends, had worked on a problem and uh, saw an opportunity to, to make a company out of that problem and, and was ready to take the risk. But I think going the other way around saying, okay, I have this problem. Now I want to like find someone out of thin air. It's just, it's a tall order. Like at the very least you should be, uh, I mean, it's, it's very different than just like hiring an engineer, right? When you're, when you're hiring an engineer, we talked about this, we've done this in the past where it's like, we're not quite sure. All right, let's, let's contract with them for uh, a month and like, see how it, how it works out. This is more like, let's, yeah, let's go rent um, an Airbnb somewhere and spend a week together trying to solve problems and see uh, how we feel coming out of that. And, and even that, you know, isn't going to be as good a signal as, as having worked with someone and, and been a friend with someone for um, months. So uh, different question. I've been a longtime listener of Gradient Descent, and I often hear Lucas use Lavanya's name. Like Lavanya says, Lavanya doesn't want us to talk about this. Lavanya's yelling at me. Um, so what are things about Lavanya that most people don't know? Oh, man. Don't be shy. <laughs> Uh, well, okay. Lavanya doesn't get burnout as far as I can tell. I've been worried that Lavanya is going to be like burnout for years now. And I tell her to like take more breaks and, and not work as hard, but apparently she's got some gene or something. We need to go to 23andMe, figure out what right, it is. Right, exactly. There's an energy thing. She gets energy from these problems. We'll be talking. She's like, oh, we're going to do our first event. And the amount of energy she got from like a stupid <laughs> deadline and a big idea was just like, I'm I feel glad like you're The more excited. impossible or outrageous <laughs> the task is, the more like stoked Lavanya is going to be to try to Because um, she get told it done. me and I went, 
when are you doing this? Like, it's already happened. It was great. It was amazing. But for those of you that went, the deadline was super short. It was comical from an outsider. But knock yourself out. I think it goes back to, like, the people, you know? Like, I feel uh, like Chris and Lucas and Sean, they're such great leaders. And they take the people who are in their team and, like, they really, like, unblock them. And they're like, you can achieve anything you want. And here's the resources, just go nuts, you know, like, and like, that is such a rare opportunity. You don't get that often to have someone who just believes in you. So like, I think, you know, that's why I keep going. Cause like they keep believing and then they keep thinking, yep, I can do it. I, I think what I have learned from Chris is Chris's ability to take on like the gnarliest problems. Like he always picks the hardest problem in the company and he's always working on it and somehow he just doesn't give up and like he doesn't get bitter he doesn't you know he just figures it out every single time and yes it's like yeah no i'm gonna try to take that from you because you said you were conflict averse but you're not conflict work averse like big issues seem to be like yay so maybe just oh that's the best feeling when you can like go up against something that's gnarly and come out like having defeated it. I, I mean, that's like, like dragon yeah, slayer. It's super satisfying. Um, I, like you I remember that, that like flash animation. I couldn't get that flash animation to work when I was a teenager and I went yeah. to bed going like, how do I get this to work? And I like woke up with a solution and got it to work. And I felt like a king, you know? Oh. Um, yeah. I'm dying to see it. I want to know our prodigy yeah. song. It was the, yeah. okay, I'm going to switch gears and ask about LLMs and AI. So AI, what is, what industry-wide are people getting wrong? Because you guys started this company way before this was a thing. And so I'm curious as what I consider as an, when I look at you, you were sort of pushing a boulder up a hill saying, Machine learning is very important. We're going to give you tools. And people were sort of like, "Uh uh-huh. And now it's a very different mindset about this. But at this very moment in time, what do you think the AI industry is getting wrong? Uh, Well, I think everything changed December last year when ChatGPT was released. Now, you got to like think what, what really happened there. It wasn't like uh we didn't have these these models it's like the interface and the rlhf tuning to to make it like a real joy to to interact with suddenly unlocked people's ability to see like a lot of people's ability to see what was possible um and now we've got a lot of just application developers uh a lot of entrepreneurs like 70% of the yc class is doing some gen ai thing uh they're coming in using these things, seeing it just as another API they can hit and use, but it's under the hood, it's this probabilistic modeling problem, something that uh, you know we're very familiar with here at Waste and Biases and have been helping teams um, to create systematic ways in which they can validate this thing that is, is not gonna be like red and green in CI, it's gonna be you know, some, uh, some gradient in between, like you're going to have some percentage that is okay. And you need a way to actually measure that and then systematically um, see how that changes over time. And then as you're changing your prompts or trying one of these new models that came out, 
you have baselines and you can actually um, compare it. So I think uh, probably one of the more common mistakes is like not putting a standard way to actually measure this stuff in a way that can be shared with folks, which is, I mean, that happens to be really good for, for weights and biases because we, we build a lot of tools to help do that. Um, but it, I think we're going to find it being more and more critical as the space gets more um, complicated or complicated and there's more iteration. What do you think the AI tech stack looks like for LMS and how is that different from the machine learning tech stack? Uh, well, I mean, I think now, certainly at least in prototyping, like you're going to probably use OpenAI um, to kind of measure, you know, GPT-4, very expensive, probably not going to be something you can put into production, but certainly something you can use to kind of evaluate how good whatever other approach you're you're using. So suddenly now the AI stack involves like hitting third-party APIs, which um, I think historically didn't happen as much. It starts to look more like traditional web development. Now, if you deploy this as a server, you need to like deal with the same things we've been dealing with as web developers for years in terms of um, seeing if there's errors, rate limits, retrying um, lost connections and whatnot. Uh, I think today still most of what I'm seeing is, is Python, but uh, JavaScript TypeScript is uh, the most commonly understood language. Um, I'd imagine if you look at the, the YC group that came out, the majority of them are are using um, JavaScript or TypeScript uh, to, to interface with these things. So that's kind of, that's a big leap. Like before, if, if you were doing data science or ML, it's just Python, you don't, you don't need JavaScript. Um, but now I think we'll have um, a fair number of folks that are more comfortable in TypeScript or, or JavaScript land, and there needs to be better tools um, for them. And then the last area is like, I think there's really cool stuff happening in the embedded, like running LLMs anywhere, whether that's on my laptop or some Raspberry Pi or um, on my phone with projects like uh, llama.cpp and, and whisper.cpp. Um, you can also, you can like run it in the browser using uh, WebGL. I think we'll start seeing more of this and in, in more novel ways to make the performance better uh, because there's a lot of, of really cool um, things you can do when, when the data is like not leaving a given environment, uh, especially as the chief information security officer, I think that's pretty <laughs> sweet because the then it literally couldn't touch any sensitive data. It's just all like right there on the edge. Do you see any problems with taking a model, having it output something and then using it to evaluate its own output? Well, uh, I mean, this, it, it sounds like, you know, when we train a model, we don't test it on anything that we we've shown it. So I would say the same should probably apply for a model that you're measuring. Like you can certainly use a, a model to measure, you know, you can use an LLM to measure an LLM, but I would, I would think you'd want to use a different LLM than the one like outputting stuff. So if I'm using GPT 3.5. I could evaluate it with, with GPT four. Um, and I would probably, even if I did that, I would want like a human labeling pass just to see if um, I'm getting more signal than noise from from whatever problem I'm working on. When you are advising big enterprises, you know, the type of companies that have um, 
traditionally move slow. And, and I think that there's a, I'll pick a bank, you know, or something, something big with all kinds of compliance issues. How would you advise they start? Because I think there's just, everybody's doing something and there's a ton of interest, but then I hear from, you know, they, they're actually also scared. It's this FOMO of being left behind fear of moving forward because of data issues. Uh, yeah, baby steps. Like first thing, just like get away for your developers to actually try stuff on um, the data that you're you're concerned about, right? So that means either uh, they can only run inference in the infrastructure where the sensitive data is using you know things like Llama or other um, open source models, or you just get that enterprise contract with with Microsoft to have like a private um, uh, instance of, of GPT, and then let the team try. And then while they're trying stuff, you can start to navigate how you com how you stay compliant if this is released to actual users and, and goes um, beyond that. But what you need is like strong um, cases for for how you could actually deploy these things within your organization and. Uh, any blocker to the developer is just, you know, it's deflating. We just want to make stuff. Um, so when we have to <laughs> jump through a bunch of hoops. Free. Yeah. Let free. them at least yeah. prototype. You you said, like, let your developer try. Yeah. And you said, like, um, figure out how to use these LMs in your org. Can you help us think big? Like, I still don't think people understand the impact these LMs can have. Like, you can have a natural interface for anything that your product does. And there's other examples like that. So what in your mind is the craziest thing these LMs can do? Uh, well, I mean, for me, I think like as a developer, we immediately got the magic of these things because they're like remarkable at writing code. Um, an example recently, one of our designers, I needed to make a loading icon on one of these pages and one of our designers, you know, gave me in English what that loading icon should do. It should rotate to the left 10%, zoom out 1%, change the opacity to 0.9, rotate right 30%. I'm reading this and I'm kind of thinking like, oh man, I haven't like written CSS in a while. I'm going to have to like look up how to do all this. And there's like, wait, I could just ask ChatGPT and it perfectly translated that English into CSS3 transforms. It's like so cool. That's like, it's magical. Um, I just got goosebumps and I know it can do this, but for some reason hearing that with like, oh, what a nightmare and such a, you know. It's so cool. It's so it's like cool. Magic. And it's such a, it's yeah, magic. the, that like interface of just like use your words and uh, it gets you. <laughs> for those of us with kids, yeah, yeah. <laughs> use your words. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> I think the other, you know, the use cases that I think are especially interesting for enterprise uh, in terms of like internal business intelligence and, and automation, like you know, really cool stuff around just in English asking for some uh, business metrics. And if you've set things up right and, and given the LLM access to the schema and where all the data is, it can generate and then run, you know, SQL and actually give you give you charts or, or information about things. What do you guys think makes this time different than all of the other cycles we've had? I mean, for me, it was like, why didn't I get it when I played with GPT-2? Like, I thought it was cool, but I also thought like, all right, well, what can you do with this? Like, it, it felt a bit toyish. Um, but to see that, oh, whoa, language turns out great interface 
and we can have it write code and we can specify the format of, of things. It becomes, you know, a really powerful interface. I think much like the transformer architecture became a really powerful way to parallelize uh, bigger and bigger compute. So I think things are just like all aligning and um, there's probably a fair bit of, of innovation still to come and yeah, it's exciting times. Thank you, Chris. And so do I. Thank yeah, you. This was a lot of fun, guys. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to that episode of Creating Descent. If you liked what you saw, don't forget to subscribe to us and we'll see you in the next episode.